Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be reviewing gun violence and gun violence prevention. June is Gun Violence Prevention Month, along with Men's Health Awareness Month. Because gun violence accounts for homicides, the leading cause of death for non-Hispanic black males ages 1 through 44 years, we think it's important to look at some of the issues involved in gun violence and some of the programs to curb gun violence. Joining me today as co-moderator is Dennis Barber, J.D., Dennis Barber is the president and CEO of the Partnership for Male Youth. We'll also be speaking with Will Jemerson. Mr. Jemerson is a team member for the Regional Gun Violence Program Team for Public Health, Seattle and King County, the Regional Peacekeepers Collective. This is an initiative implemented by the RGV program. So let's begin by talking with Will Jemerson, Jr. As mentioned, Will is a team member with the Regional Gun Violence Program. It's a team for public health, Seattle and King County Regional Peacekeepers Collective. This is a program that's an initiative implemented by the Regional Gun Violence Program. Welcome, Will. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what you're doing and your background? Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I would say it's nice to to be in this space, to be able to speak on uh, such an important issue topic. It's not nice for the reason, but it's nice to be able to add some kind of considerable value in, in raising some of the, the issues to bring uh, more along of a, a collective approach and, 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 and even what we all can do. In the regard of what you asked, my name is Will R. Jimerson. As detailed, I work with the Regional Gun Violence Prevention team with King County Public Health. I'm the community facilitator. I have been working in this particular capacity since 2020. The first inception really was just looking primarily at the ADP, which is the annual daily population of young folks who were inside of the juvenile center and looking at different community-based alternatives and strategies that could be potentially operationalized and support young folks by creating a diversion of some sort, rather than going further and being entrenched into the system, there could be some connected points of 
you know, looking at them as possibilities and, and potentials to blossom into uh, rather than kind of throwing dirt over their possibility. And so when it was a deeper dive that was that was assessed and analysis was taken, there was the assessment that seeing the population begin to decrease, but there was still the increase of disproportionality to race, but also there was the glaring statistics of young folks who were being detained in King County Juvenile was they were being detained for gun-related offenses. And and so as we begin to take a deeper dive, it became obvious, especially during the pandemic, there has been this national as well as this local uptick to gun violence and doing our part to provide resources and services to help to mechanize and operationalize structures that collectivize folks' professional ability, whether it's in the capacity of educators or whether it's in the capacity of other first responders like police officers. We also have our community violence interventionists, uh, specialists who work in communities. So we've been doing that work. That's the work that we've been really zeroed in and focused on is raising a professional capacity around our regional peacekeepers collective and being able to X out, you know, the threat of gun violence and the harm that comes along with that. So you're working on sort of a group of people who have already been in the system? Well, some of them have been in the system, depending on what particular system we're referring to. But I think obvious in terms of some of them are subject matter experts. And the reason why I say some, because it does require the collective lifting of all of us and our professionalism to be able to see the value of every young person being able to live beyond conflict. But we know that in order to reduce the, the potentiality of gun violence and conflict that poten that potentially resonates with a particular group, um, we have to be able to raise up the, the capacity professionally amongst those who can make some of that more earnest connection with that population. And so some of those folks have been similarly situated at, at one particular time as a population that they're serving. And we see them and regard them as subject matter are experts with lived experience, credible messengers for the lack of a better term. And, and in some aspects, is you know, we it goes looking at the old Kamai proverb, it takes a spider to repair a spider web. So in this instance, this is raising that value in that particular population to be able to help to support these young folks. So we kind of see them as a new kind of public health worker. So in well, probably decade plus, a number of cities have implemented programs or interrupter programs, and they're, they're varied from a geographic approach to a very individual approach. Some of the individual approaches really focus funds on individuals who have been, in some instances, repeated, well, felons, and maybe four or five times, and finally have been recommended for a one-on-one -on -one intervention where those individuals were spoken with by credible individuals where money is offered for training and services while they're getting trained. And more than just that, there is a commitment to a long-term follow-up. Other models are getting out with credible individuals to a community and just kind of being aware that, hey, we can interview, interview and perhaps we can change the direction of this person. It's not as heavily resource focused. So give a little more background in what we're doing here. Yeah. So in this particular model of 
Regional Peacekeepers Collective. It does host a collective of different practitioners, providers that provide a, a host of different resources and supports. And we also, in this particular model, it's we kind of dubbed it IPR, which stands for Intervention, Prevention, and Restoration. The reason why we start first with the intervention, because we are the focus group that is going to receive these kind of supports and these efforts, we already know that they're impacted um, in some sense. So if you kind of look at it through the lens of public health, those who are at risk and those who are actually living with the, the permeation of the disease of violence, they're no longer considered at risk. They actually have that. So in this particular instance, intervention is for those who are in some not only at risk, but those who are impacted by that particular disease. And so what we do is we usher in and support resources through we look to we like to look at it as a gold standard in terms of training, learning how to properly engage the population, provide the resources that are needed and necessary to look at them holistically, to insert what we would say an ISP, which is an individualized safety plan or support plan for this young person that will look at their immediate circumstances, that also will look at how we can engage support to their families, how that support can be also engaged to maybe younger siblings as well. Unfortunately, sometimes because we're we're dealing with the cycle of this particular violence, it can be very aggressive in terms of gun violence. And so sometimes you're dealing with young folks who are impacted with actual gun injuries that there's immediate intervention in our partnership with Harborview Medical Center through our evaluation and data points. We were able to see early on in our partnership that over 105, 50 actually reports that were for gunshot injuries. The majority of them were young folks coming through Harborview Medical Center. They were ushering through that process without actually having any kind of follow-up aftercare or support. The doctors found themselves in a unique position of doing their best to try to revive or bring this some, some wholeness back to this person's life. And in some instances, only to see them return once again, either as a victim of possible chances of survival or not. And so just looking at how we can connect some of these gaps that we've seen in supports. And so, so through that IPR model, and we kind of, you know, taking a public approach perspective, I'm looking at it like CPR, you know, CPR is an essential life-saving tool and something that in our basic human toolkit, we should all have that resource. So looking at gun violence in the same way through in some sense of public health lens, how can we offer some of these strategic supports to a more specialized group of folks who are collaborating through multidisciplinary or multi-jurisdictional practices, but also how we can give some of those basic supports even to the general population, similar to COVID. How can you just put your mask on? How can you pro properly socially distance? These are some of the things that we will web into or weave into the basics around like conflict resolution. There's things like we do in terms of community. There's the groups that, that offer these supports. There's conflict resolution, conflict re remediation. There's hotspot remediation that is provided. There are many different social community events that are resourcing community. One of the, the things that are provided that's become a staple that a lot of people like is the gun lockbox giveaway. You know, there's a variations of different lockboxes, trigger locks and gun cable locks that folks can have for free. They go through a free training to safely to be able to lock up their firearms, which reduces, you know, the threat of harm on the end. Some of those harm reduction practices are implemented. And as you mentioned, yes, there is a gold standard practice 
So we do have the likes of folks like Dr. Akil Bashir, who teaches a first responder model in relation to community violence intervention on a national level. He's taught in El Salvador, all over the U.S. He's come here on several occasions. And so we have our own critical incidents response team that works in tangent with different first responders, such as SPD and other different folks. They're one side, one side conversation around different strategies to resource the community in areas that the need is there for. So, Yeah, the Firearm Injury and Policy Program at Harborview and the Injury Prevention and Research Center certainly has been promoting a lot of what you just said as far as there's a lot of firearms out there and just firearm safety, training, locking up household firearms, leaving them unloaded, reduces risks of suicide and homicide. And also, you know, there are the alerts for people who are at extreme risk. There are interventions where you can take the firearm temporarily out of that person's reach, perhaps spare them self-harm or harming somebody else. Are you feeling like your network is able to expand? Are you seeing things grow finally? Yeah, we had our soft launch in 2021, June 4th, which comprised of you know, all the organizations work in collaboration, working in different very aspects of Seattle. They were in, we were in the central district, set up tent there, did some some welcoming into that space on 23rd and Jackson, where we have seen historical times as well as in current times, you know, where there's been some issues of gun violence in that area as well. So we wanted to ensure that we're speaking to the right population, providing supports and resources to the right population. Um, so, yes. There's not a misunderstanding in anyone's head or in anyone's language that gun violence is it should be a priority. And what I mean by a priority, something that is that is executed beyond just linguistics in terms of that particular strategy, but it also is showing up in the value of how folks are resourcing, you know, opportunities to build capacity around this work. So structurally, I say we are probably behind a theory of where we really, really need to grow in terms of execution. But I feel like we're all on the right track and are going in the right direction of understanding that more needs to be met, that we need to find those who are more probably proximate to the solution to get them closer to the problem so they can bring that solution to that issue, but also finding ways of strategically bringing out everybody's skill set to do their part. For an example, what I mean by that is if you look at gun violence as being one of the most preventable causes of death, but if you look at the U.S. data, it shows that, you know, those between the ages zero and 19 that are succumbing to death more than any other form of death. And that's due gun violence, right? So we're talking about young folks who are of school age. So what that means is if we have that population who are being exposed to a high percentage of a preventable cause of death, then how can we insert those who have insurmountable time or access to that population, such as school teachers or other different community-based organizations or after-school programs? There should be some way that we can insert some resources and services to them. So that's when we're talking about burgeoning this practice and growing it out. Research evaluation is going to help us strengthen that. But yes, we want to be able to see the practice grow beyond the measured current standards that we have, whether that's in investment. We just want to see it become a priority where the numbers could you know, go down and rather in its opposite direction. It seems there's a better understanding about some of the necessities of 
intervention. You know, you can't just say, drop your guns, get rid of them. I mean, that doesn't work, right? And somebody's home circumstances are not optimal. They're looking for food. They're looking for housing. They may have a very unstable home environment. All those factors, both social and economic, factor into this. And I think that's been realized, at least some of the studies that I was able to look at. And so in intervention, do you have some behavioral modification techniques that you're all working with? Or do you have personnel who are able to take some of the young people who, you know, react very quickly and maybe look at teaching more about not initially going with anger management, the lighting a match, but thinking first about consequences of what's going to happen. I mean, how are you going about that? Do you have specialists who can intervene in that part of things? Well, yeah, definitely at the level of just intervention at that level, you know, contact and impact. And you definitely have to consider one's well-being, where they may be at in terms of just their life, you know. And so the opportunity definitely does exist in the model and being provided where there's a CBI component, which is a cognitive behavioral intervention. It's almost like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but it specializes specifically with this particular population who has been impacted in in a particular kind of way. So definitely we understand that, but we also understand on a larger level, there are other different indicators as well. You know, even though you can work with and try to work against some of those things, not necessarily just in behavioral modification, but also in a way of just healing some of the trauma that one has been exposed to and giving them a recognition that you are not at fault nor at blame to what you have been exposed to, what has happened to you has occurred to you, but in some sense and in every way you are responsible for the recovery. And so what we try to do is provide those resources and supports to help that tra- that transformation around a recovery. But we also understand when we're looking at this through a public health lens or perspective, and even holistically, you understand that zip codes are also indicators of one's, you know, uh, life, you know, lifespan and opportunities and access to thereof. And so we also know that this is going to take something measured beyond just someone who has probably had lived experience and be able to help you navigate some of the, you know, day-to-day trivial components to life, but also there's some larger components that are connected to, you know, one's overall well-being. So, Great segue into who are some of your partners to help in that? So some of our partners to help in that, as we mentioned, is Harborview Medical Center, which they have a a list or a line of resources that they offer, but they're also connected to a system of care coordinators or referral process. And in that process, young folks, their families, everybody is looked at in a way of how they can be supported. No one is coming in in a way that's looking to cause any kind of further harm or damage. So that even means constitute being in recognition of even some cultural values that may exist that even in your, your sense of well-being, you can also you know and do some, some harm, even though your intent was to do good. So even in that, that healthy handoff of just having a recognition of how to support some of those other um, um, commu- uh, um, partners or community-based organizations, we have a lead organization in which at this particular time where 
the contract goes to them and then they subcontract out with other organizations that specialize within the component of the model IPR, the intervention prevention and restoration, a portion of which they can make the contribution towards. Example would be a young person might be in need of case management support. The organization that specializes in case management provided to young folks exposed to a particular kind of trauma receives those services. They also might get connected to maybe some art therapy, meaning, you know, some entertainment agent program that exists within the organizations that they can get support around. Um, And so those things come from organizations like Freedom Project, Progress Pushers, Community Progress, Community Passageways. We also have Rainer Beach Action Coalition. We have Urban Family. We also have Southeast Network. We have Fathers and Sons Together. We have Fatherhood Movement Fam. And trying to think of the other, or is there other organizations? Maybe I apologize, count it to my head and not my heart at this moment. But yeah, there's a there's a plethora of this will of resources that are being provided through this strategic approach. But we also have some national partners. We also have local partners as well through the multidisciplinary approach around how do you support young folks today right now to prevent them from succumbing from a preventable cause of death like gun violence, but also how do we build out sustainable efforts to ensure that it doesn't happen tomorrow as well? So that's where the partnerships come in with King County, you know, prosecuting attorney's office, um, Seattle Police Department. You also have, you know, a Kent mayor and their police department. You also have Berrien. So there's this strategy of imploring whatever specialized skill set that each partner has to ensure that we're servicing this this population with the resources that they need in order to see the numbers go down in terms of gun violence. So at the end of the day, what do you wish you had more of? What is a resource or resources that you would write down at the end of every day and say, I need more of this? Oh, man. You're asking me in my wish list, man. My, it, can, it can definitely extend. But I think that if we just look at some of the things that we want to prioritize, I think that we need more. I would say the right now, as I stated, the theory around, and I'm talking about collectively, because this population has been impacted for the most part, has not been seen for the most part. America's heart is not connected to this population because it doesn't represent it doesn't represent the highest value. So in some sense, I feel like the information, the intent, the aspiration is very high around the work, but the investment is much lower. And we need to raise the investment to match those expectations. And so when we look at the opiates, you know, epidemic, which is horrific, right? And it requires the resources that it is receiving, which is billions of dollars in order to reduce what's going on in that particular circumstance. And I implore that it continues to receive the necessary supports to move that that thing forward, whatever is necessary to preserve the lives of young folks and other folks and whoever else that's deserving of those that opportunity. But when we look at gun violence, we see that there's other disparity where more young folks are actually dying from gun violence, which is a more preventable cause of death, than on opiates. But there's a billion dollars, you know, investment. But here we were only a couple hundred million, you know, right now we just through the uh, Community Safety Act, 
you know, with the current administration just signed off on the $250 million act that goes out nationally to various cities. And, you know, there's going to be larger cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, Detroit, Los Angeles, that's going to probably pick up most of those resources, which is understandable. And that goes to show the level of divestment that continues to take place in this industry when you start to look at the population that it impacts the most. And we know that part of that, because even though majority of young folks are dying from gun violence, but they're also black and brown. You know, so you have to call those things into space. So you have to call the other different things into space that are not taking place in terms of life-saving efforts and valuing these populations. So more of what I would like to see is more resources being pumped into this population to build a raise the professional value. I want to ensure that every credible messenger, any, any person who's doing this particular work of putting their hands in the life of young folks, that they're doing the proper sanitizing of their hands, that they're getting the proper training, they're getting the proper know-how and do-how to implement. I always tell my team, I kind of look at them as the elites, the Navy SEALs of this work. And the reason why I impress upon that language is because I want them to know, to no offense to anyone who might even work or serve in the fast food industry because we all can enjoy, you know, at one particular time or some point in time, fast food. But just thinking about, you know, in the junction of, you know, trying to set up safety parameters and provisions for our country, you know, this beautiful country of America or any other beautiful country, you wouldn't tend to lean on someone who might walked out of, you know, maybe two years in this fast food industry to be a Navy SEAL. You want the best of the best. So your recommendation of what you order is going to be set high, but also the resources to be able to make that execution take place is there as well. I want the same to take place in this industry when it comes to community violence intervention work, when it comes to putting your hands in the lives of young folks who are deserving of an opportunity to live beyond conflict. I want it to be the expectation to be so high that you mentioned this earlier, that there has to be an excellence, but a level of commitment. You said you mentioned the word commitment. And every time I hear the word commitment is different than, than the word involvement, you know, and, and Les Brown, you know, one of the people I've listened to in many years, he, he talks about the difference being involved and being committed. You know, he said, for if you will think about, you know, having breakfast and, you know, steak and eggs for breakfast, you know, the, the cow was committed, but the chicken was just involved, you know. And so the reality is we got to be willing to get everything, you know. And, and so when I think about the level of commitment of of a Dr. King, someone who actually succumbed to gun violence, right, even though we celebrate him and we say how beautiful a person he was, and he didn't have the highest approval standards, right, that he would prior to him his demise, you know, and we have this watered down version because we want to have a watered down version or variation of how we do this work. But if we show Dr. King in his most colorful, revolutionary understanding of who he really was, it's going to make us lean in a little differently. And I often ask us to lean in as, you know, see ourselves more as co-conspirators than leaders, because you're going to make a whole lot of mistakes if you just see yourself as a leader, because you think you're going to know what you're doing and you're really not, you know, and, and if you look at the data and the data is going to show these things are still occurring and still happening on your watch, then obviously you need to probably not call yourself the leader, but there's a reality that really goes into it. We need to lean in, not be leaders, but lean in and look at ourselves as co-conspirators because it's still happening on our watch. You know, it's still happening. We still see the dis disparity of race. We still see the disparity of gun violence. We still see the disparity of even how language utilizes resources to bring in for gun violence, for an example, like mass shootings, which 
are of an issue and they need to be addressed and, and folks need to be supported all across that issue. But there's also a variation around disproportionality when it comes to race in terms of how you might see or qualify mass shooting. Someone standing at the park and the park gets shot up. It may not qualify as a mass shooting. Are you at a party and the party gets shot up? Are you in your neighborhood and you're, you know, getting shot up? These things may not qualify as mass shooting, so they may not get recorded the same way. So they may not fall underneath certain stipulations of language that allow certain maybe larger agencies to bring in resources for to combat gun violence. So when I talk about burgeoning the practice around this, speaking to the things that I do know in, in terms of what needs to be there and even some of the unforeseen things that I don't understand in terms of contract execution and some of those other different barriers to government funding that allows you to have you know, more equitable access to transformation, those things need to be in, in, in the mix as well, not just putting the pressure on you know, community violence interventionists to go into the space and thinking that they go in and wave this invisible magic wand that's connected to this lived experience. And all of a sudden, you know, it goes away and then they get buried into this practice of being outreach workers and community violence interventionists for 30 years. But there's not a substantial opportunity for them to keep leading this practice or leaning into this practice as co-conspirators to help implement change or policy change in other different opportunities and Maybe it's an office of violence or something like that. But these are the kind of things that I feel like that needs to create a more wider lens around the practice that I do see some of those implementations opportunities taking place, but um, not probably as fast as they should. Well, Will, I just hope you don't get frustrated. It is a campaign. And over time, campaigns <laughs> hopefully are successful. I hope that this opportunity for people to hear you at least people who are voting, they can vote in the dollars, they can vote in the effort, they may know somebody. And I just hope the people that make decisions talk to you, or at least are listening to this. Dennis, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I was interested in at the ground level or at the individual level, how you have community outreach. You mentioned teachers, working through teachers, but how do you get individuals into the system? There's a variety of different ways. That's where our subject matter experts come into practice because they already have an understanding, a, a discipline around the communities that are impacted most by gun violence and who may be in higher need of these different services. So their referrals are measured into that practice, but also community can place our referrals with those different agencies that are on our website. And I'm sure Ariana can make sure that you guys get more additional information in knowing how to connect with those different agencies or this practice or this service model. And if some young folks fall into are at risk of this particular of gun violence, but there's also, once again, there's partners like the Harborview Medical Center where there's young folks, and you talked about this earlier, and I was thinking about that early early intersectionality of being able to reduce gun violence, where some of the data has showed us you know, that that early intervention helps to reduce, you know, upwards to 87 percent or 90 percent of possibility of retaliation. If a young person, there's intervention, immediate intervention supports that are being provided at the bedside. And so that's an opportunity for referral where the young person and her family is being referred into this particular practice. And when they're referred, they're connected to the referral manager care team. And then that care team connects the young person based upon their ISP, which is an individual support or safety plan. 
that highlights what they need to have access to around their, their particular safety plan. I mean, sometimes there's also referral opportunities where there's those things I mentioned earlier from a hotspot remediation or engagement practices. You go to different locations to engage community. You might find out who might need services. You, you put them in a re- referral process. There's opportunities to community events that are thrown. Like I said, mentioning earlier, the lockbox, you know, where there's those opportunities show up where you have no idea where there's so many black and brown faces and populations who they don't know that they're like, I can get a, a lockbox there. They don't even realize that they might call me off grid and say, Hey, Will, I didn't know how to ask, but I didn't, you know, they might feel some sense of shame that they even are firearm owners. They don't want anyone to know, but they want their families and everyone to be safe and they want the gun to be locked up. But these kind of things are an opportunity for referral because I've had, you know, family or mother say, well, in connection with that, the reason I might need to lock my gun up because I got such and such going through X, Y, and Z in terms of maybe a son or someone who needs some support. We want to ensure that they get the support so it's an opportunity. So there's a host of ways that the opportunities for referrals come through. And then there's just that down old school way of just, you know, maybe getting online and going through that referral process. And like I mentioned earlier, there's a link that will connect you to each particular organization through our resource uh, that we are safe for summer resource list that we did have. We have to probably update that link. We do put out a safe for summer strategy because we see the correlation, you know, through data that shows us the uptick of gun violence tend to kind of go up, you know, where the weather conditions improve and there's more exposure, you know, to people who may have conflict or to have conflict and and those things show up in gun violence, unfortunately. So we do have a safer summer strategy that we do put out, which has a, a link to each organization and different services that they provide throughout the summer, throughout their organization and what is free and what's exposable to opportunities for community. Well, anything else that you want to kind of summarize, end up with, ask for, let people know about, you know, this is a chance to air it out. My ask is if anyone is looking to get involved, to connect themselves to with Ariana, who is our communications, she does a great job in making sure that folks are all are connected to this process. So if there's any way variation, maybe that want to be connected to this process. There might be an event they want to know about that they want to come out to be a part of. But if there's something in specific that we can find to do this public health work and ensuring that folks are knowing how to, you know, carry their mask and put in their, their hand sanitizer for the lack of better terms in terms of at the general population, what they can possibly do to reduce, you know, the spread of or the threat to this particular disease of gun violence, we're willing to do our part. So that's all I can say, just, you know, and you know, I can't Im- impress more the need for, you know, rigorous investment around these efforts and really professionalizing and growing the capacity around those efforts as well. And yeah, so those are the things that I would say that I would really hammer out. And, and if there's any more that need to be added, Ariana is the person for that connection. Well, well, thank you. It's been enlightening. I really appreciate your time. We always like to leave our listeners with any additional resources that they can utilize on this topic. Do you have a way that people can follow you? If you want to get in contact with us, we can be contacted further at Instagram at King County RGV. That is at King County RGV. And then we also could be connected at Twitter. That is King County RGV. Twitter at King County RGV. 
Thank you. So that's uh, King County Regional Gun Violence, RGV, as in violence. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you for sharing with us and spending the time. And I really, really hope that this continues to be as successful as you have launched it and it continues to grow. Thank you. And thank you for having us. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.